You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. so much for being here tonight on this Wednesday night for Poetry and Conversation with Joseph Ross and Michael Torres. It's wonderful to have the chance to gather around books and writing together, even virtually. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to start off with a few words of gratitude to the Pratt. Um, also, I'm Hannah Fenster. I'm one of the managers at the Ivy Bookshop. Um, and we have been just so incredibly grateful to be a part of the Pratt's virtual event series during the pandemic. Um, It's been a wild year, to say the least, um, and the Pratt has been an absolute constant throughout it. Um, We've been so impressed with everything they've done um, to support Baltimore um, and have our backs over the past 12 months. Um, Yeah, the same way the Pratt has been steadfast in its connection to the Ivy, it and to independent bookstores, it has been to the city of Baltimore. Um, So just a big thank you to them always. Um, Another thing that has been a constant tethering force this year, incidentally, is poetry. Um, The Ivy opened in its new location in October, and our poetry section has a prominent place at the focal point of the store. We call it the prow of the ship because it's shaped that way. And we've noticed that poetry sales have gone up with a larger number of people than ever before purchasing individual collections that they either seek out on their own or find via recommendation. Um, And this is just such a wonderful thing. And I think it's indicative of the way poetry resonates in times of intense experience and feeling. Um, And the work of these two poets tonight is just the best example of this. Um, I'm gonna put links in the chat to to the books by both of these poets. Um, And I hope you will check them out after you hear them read. Um, And in the meantime, I will hand it off to Shailene to introduce our speakers. And thank you again for being here and for being poetry lovers. And hi, thank you so much, Hannah. Um, I'm Shailene from the Pratt Library, and we do love the Ivy Bookshop at the Pratt and also appreciate what you guys do for Baltimore. Um, And I want to join Hannah in thanking everyone for coming. Um, I am thrilled that we are featuring Joseph Ross and Michael Torres tonight, and I can't wait to hear them read. But before we get there, I want to make a couple quick announcements. And one is I want to remind everyone of the good news that the Pratt Library has reopened its doors for limited browsing and computer access. Our locations are operating at 25% capacity and the safety of everyone is of course a high priority. Also, I wanted to mention that there's going to be a Q&A portion to this evening um, after Joseph and Michael read. And we really welcome your questions and comments at any point during the hour. If you're with us in Zoom, you can put your questions or hellos in the chat. And if you are with us on Facebook, then you can put them in the comments and we will see them there as well. Okay, so I'm going now to introduce the first reader, Joseph Ross. 
Joseph Ross is the author of four books of poetry, Raising King, Ache, Gospel of Dust, and Meeting Bone Man. His poems appear in many places, including the New York Times Magazine, the Los Angeles Times, Poet Lore, Xavier Review, Southern Quarterly, and Drum Voices Review. He has received multiple Pushcart Prize nominations and won the 2012 Pratt Library Poetry Contest. He recently served as the 23rd Poet in Residence for the Howard County Poetry and Literature Society in Howard County, Maryland. And he teaches English and creative writing at Gonzaga College High School in Washington, DC, and writes regularly at www.josephross.net. Um, Joseph's new book, Raising King, breathes fresh life into Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy, sharing a vision of King's life and work that is of great relevance to our world today. These poems combine precept with perception, idea with drama, searingly truthful, spare, and musical. They reach towards an ideal that they also embody, love joined to power. In one of my favorite poems, One Arrest, a man is apprehended for helping a woman. The poem counters this injustice with its own careful record of human dignity, describing the woman's, quote, brown-heeled shoe greeting the concrete with a firmness of its own making. We're so happy to have Joseph here tonight reading from this inspiring book. Here is Joseph Ross. Thank you very much, Shailene. That, that was a lovely introduction. Thank you. Um, and I want to just really echo my thanks to Shailene and to the Pratt. Um, the Pratt Library is such a great friend of writers, especially a great friend of poets. Um, and I think the city of Baltimore is, is really blessed with that place. It's, I feel like it's a little bit of a home to me, too. Um, I want to really say a thanks to Michael Torres, who I'm meeting kind of live for the first time tonight. Um, but Michael and I both come from the same town, uh, Pomona, California, about 25 miles straight east of, of uh, downtown Los Angeles. And um, we grew up there, I think, a couple of decades apart, maybe, but, but uh, homies nonetheless in, in that way. And I'm really, really happy to, and his new book, Incomplete List of Names, is beautiful. And I'm looking forward to hearing you read too, Michael. Um, I feel like I think we have a, a few friends from Pomona. I can't see you here, but in some friends from other parts of the country, I just want to say a shout out. So thank you, everybody who's pulled in here. And um, maybe just last, uh, you know, tomorrow, um, I think we're going to the country marks a year of this pandemic. And so I just want to sort of dedicate my part of this reading to all of those people who have lost someone they've loved in this year. Uh, that's been a real year of loss. Uh, and I hope that maybe these poems can throw a little bit of light uh, into, in, into this. So Raising King goes from uh, Montgomery to Memphis. Let's go. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Prologue. One. In the beginning was a boat swollen with humans history would call slaves. The men who loved these boats thought they knew Jesus. They prayed Jesus. They ate Jesus. Their boat cut the waters like a whip, leaving a weeping scent in its churning wake. The moon lit the water around the boat, but the moon did not light the boat. The boat worked through the waters in the dark. 
Now the boat is dust, the whip survives. Two, a man came who was not a slave. He was not the moon, its light, or the water. Like the boats before him, he too cut the water, but he was not the whip. He had bones the whip could not reach, but he was not the bones. He had light to cut the darkness, but he was not the light. He met the darkness when the whip became a bullet. The man stood and the bullet came. His bones are dust, but the man survives. And these first poems then are from uh, Montgomery, the bus boycott section um, of Raising King. Tired. These feet slip between sheets to a morning floor. Before coffee and language, they know the air. They welcome sock and shoe. Laces hold them ready for the work of the day of being beneath. They create the straight way of sidewalk, the step of curb, the caution of crosswalk, the patience of standing still. When heel and arch and toe press leather to concrete, they scuff the smile of protest, the unmistakable joy of defiance. Dr. King called um, the first day of the boycott the day of days, uh, December 5th, when he, after all the planning and he realized, finally discovered what would happen. Day of days. You plan and call and organize and prepare for every eventuality, but you never know what will come. My wife and I woke earlier than usual and I was afraid. I was still saying, if we could get 60%, I'd be satisfied. In my mind, buses rolled by with black people atop the bus, hanging from windows, dragging their feet. White men and women filled the bus laughing, doubled over laughing. What was I thinking would happen? I was in the kitchen, whispering over a cup of coffee when I heard Coretta cry, Martin, Martin, come quickly. I stopped praying and ran into the living room, breathing like an army. A slowly moving bus rolled down our street like a hearse, the casket still years away. Coretta sang into my faithlessness, darling, it's empty. I could hardly believe it. Sometimes believing and knowing have to happen at the same time. I'm gonna change up my order and read one arrest uh, that Shailene uh, mentioned a minute ago. Uh, Dr. King wrote in Stride Toward Freedom all about Montgomery, the police succeeded in making one arrest. Home from college for Christmas break, he saw an elderly woman on the corner, hesitant to step into the street, unsure of the concrete, the cars, the color of safety constantly changed. She leaned like one who needed to cross. She looked in more directions than there were. He walked up behind her, spoke to her. She took his arm like the prophet's staff it was, raised her eyes and stepped into the street, her brown-heeled shoe greeting the concrete with a firmness of its own making. She did not look down. She thanked him at the opposite curb. They smiled until the police walked up. He urged her to go on. She refused. The police said words they would not say to their grandmothers. She told them she'd been scared to cross, but this young man, so they arrested him for intimidating passengers. She recorded his face in her mind 
and kept it there for years after, an icon, almost a savior. Mass meetings. These meetings were our lungs. Here we breathed. We needed to christen an organization, a leader. I didn't know these people. Abernathy was my only friend. We baptized ourselves the Montgomery Improvement Association, a name as good as any other, better than one that sounded too much like their white citizen councils. They were named for terror. We were named for resurrection. Then it was me, put the new guy out there. He hasn't been beaten by them yet. He has a degree of distance that will throw them for a bit. My only real qualification, I didn't yet know the density of the human fist. Dr. King received uh, many phone calls like the one this poem describes, Inheritance. That angry voice on the phone was once someone's dearest baby, a most promising little boy who said, listen, N-word, we've taken all we want from you. Before next week, you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. This beautiful little boy, smiling, giggling, today sings out a hatred he has learned, a song his country handed him. His hatred and fear are not really his. He inherited them. He took them into himself without knowing how gruesome they would taste, how they would sicken him too. I cannot hate him for inheriting this. I will not destroy him just because someone taught him to destroy me. And also after one of those calls uh, at midnight, Dr. King and Montgomery remembered sitting at the kitchen table. This is called Midnight. I've always been here, in this midnight kitchen, in this midnight city, in this midnight life. I've always known this is when the strength comes in this midnight country, in my midnight throat, from this midnight God. Each section in Raising King ends with a poem um, in the voice of Coretta Scott King. Dr. King obviously couldn't have lived his life uh, without her. So this is Coretta Scott King Montgomery. Remember, she was a trained singer. They met at uh, Boston University. If there is sheet music for this city, I have never seen its likes before. The melody keeps changing. Just as I start to sing one line, I see the notes at the end of the line, dodging and ducking in every direction. Quarter notes dart from their place on the staff and try to stand up taller to puff out their chests like whole notes, keeping their voice alive longer. I can sing almost anything, but this shape-shifting opera of shoes makes it hard to breathe. It keeps moving from solo to choral piece. I know there are other voices and I know their timber is all shoe and sweat, but I fear they will leave me bare. Dr. King begins his second book, uh, Why We Can't Wait, describing a boy in Harlem and a girl in rural Birmingham, Alabama. And, and that book, Why We Can't Wait, is all about the violence of 1963. This poem is titled 1963. One, 
A boy sits on his stoop. The house leans hopeless as he is. The rats love him and his family. They know him. He has nowhere to go. He has nowhere to be. He dreams of nowhere. When he wakes after dreams of nowhere, he goes nowhere. His school forgets him. He forgets him. His parents work, but their exhaustion forgets him too. Is he a dream? Has his country deferred him? Can nowhere explode? Two. A girl sits on her stoop, the wood of her home older than her grandmother, but not as sturdy. The field where her parents work is thirsty as she is, but not as angry. She sits and remembers school, but learns now in a field because debts are loud. They shout more fury than books. Three. This is the year young people will sing fury in a melody that hurts, in a rhythm that burns, a flame so hot, fire hoses shove these singers against walls. But those hoses and their water, their judges, their county clerks, their governor and their country cannot extinguish anything. The only power. When a person accepts undeserved suffering, a spark bursts into air. It coughs, gasps, and breathes. It begins its burning life. When a person accepts undeserved suffering, the privilege of the mighty trembles before the only power it does not have, the willingness to suffer. eye to eye. This is the glance I never dared. These are the words the glance spoke. I am a man. I will not look at my shoes anymore. I will square my shoulders. The bones within are the same as yours, the same but for one difference. My bones know how to carry your dying privilege. King remembered um, Ralph Abernathy and why we can't wait uh, his great friend from Montgomery all the way to the end of his life uh, and asking him to go to jail with him when he knew on Good Friday when he knew that they would miss being in their churches on Easter Sunday and this was the time he would go to jail and write the letter from the Birmingham, from Birmingham jail. Martin King speaks of Ralph Abernathy. I knew what he would say before I asked him but asking is my religion. He shook his head and smiled, like he always does. He spoke in the language of brother, the dialect of love. He knew the buoyancy of a decision made. He knew I did too. Once you say it, the doing is easier. Once you do it, your body floats into prayer. And Dr. King uh, remembers... Um, in Birmingham, um, Jim Bevel, the great organizer uh, who pulled children into the, the marches in the final days. This is in dresses and bows. In dresses and bows, in, in t-shirts and jeans, in crisp church shirts and skinny black ties, with songs and laughter, with swagger and sweat, for honor and for fun, for a future they wanted, for a present they refused. 
Dr. King himself, and uh, of course his home was bombed in Montgomery and other places as well, and, and his brother's home was bombed uh, outside of Birmingham. This poem uh, is called My Brother's Keeper. I am, of course, my brother's keeper. I have always been my brother's keeper. We have always been our brother's keepers. His home is our home. The bomb on his porch is the bomb on our porch. The men who leave the bomb in the darkness, they are ours too. Remembering Birmingham, um, most people know the bombing of the 16th Street Church, um, killing four little girls and injuring hundreds. The same day, uh, two black boys were killed in Birmingham, uh, Virgil Ware and a boy named Johnny Robinson, who was killed by police. Virgil, Ro Virgil Ware was killed by a, a white boy on a bicycle, uh, and he was riding a bicycle too. This poem is for Virgil Ware. Our Lady of Sorrows comes to Birmingham too for Virgil Ware. A boy on his bike should be out of bounds, dreaming of his paper route, admiring his big brother, smiling till his cheek turns. His mother waited for him, doted on him, treated him like the little one he was. This moment, a wound riding by on a motorbike would break her too. She would stand beside this cross and stare at what their fear does. She would breathe without wanting to. She would open her arms to receive the altar of his limp body. She would raise him to the God who did not protect him. She would hiss through her bruised teeth. This is my body given up for you. On the last night of his life in Memphis, um, Dr. King had gone to Memphis twice uh, to support the sanitation workers there. And uh, most people are familiar with the speech he gave at the Mason Temple, where he sort of prophetically um, almost points to his assassination the next day. Of course, because he had been living under death threats for years at that point. This poem is called The Mountaintop. An exhaustion rests on my skin like sweat. Tonight, I am a fire with this truth. I and we are one. Whether I see certain victory does not matter anymore. Whether my children see it is all that matters. That the children of Memphis see it is enough. Tonight I am alive with this comfort. I can let it all go. The worst fear will eventually come true. I will not know its day and time until it is here. Even then I might not know it. Tonight I am released with this glory. My own eyes have seen it. Tonight I am at peace with this terror. And let me finish with um, Martin Luther King epilogue. One, when his body is carried through the streets in a wooden wagon older than his father, when his children look on his lifeless skin with curious grief, when his widow's face waits in stillness, knowing every day from now on can be a bullet. Two, like the many who killed him, T2 knew Jesus, but his life prepared his hands for the silk of wood. He readied his palms for the kiss of nails. He knew more than knowing can say. He bled more than blood. 
three, three. Most days, memory is the enemy, but no one wants a memory. We want the touch, the real man. One day, memory is all that remains. We will all burn down to its truth. Four, he knew memory wedded to time makes possible. He knew memory loved into the future can crush a bullet into sand. He knew this was not hope or magic. He knew memory burned into tomorrow is not a certainty. Every moment waits to be used. And using time carefully is our why. Using time with love is our revolution. This is how we raise him. This is how we rise. Thank you. Oh, Joseph, thank you so much. Um, that was really beautiful. Um, sorry. And that was wonderful and um, really moving. Thank you for that reading. And, um, and I just want to remind our audience again to send their love virtually to the, uh, to the poets through the chat since we can't have a round of applause. I'm sure we're all <laughs> applauding in our separate spaces at this point. Um, and now I'm going to introduce Michael Torres. Michael Torres was born and brought up in Pomona, California, where he spent his adolescence as a graffiti artist. His debut collection of poems, An Incomplete List of Names, which came out last year from Beacon Press, was selected by Raquel Salas Rivera for the National Poetry Series. His honors include awards and support from the National Endowment for the Arts, the McKnight Foundation, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, Canto Mundo, Vona Voices, the Minnesota State Arts Board, the Jerome Foundation, the Camargo Foundation, and the Loft Literary Center. Currently, he's an assistant professor in the MFA program at Minnesota State University, Mankato and a teaching artist with the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop, and you can visit him at michaeltorreswriter.com. Michael's new book explores questions of representation, how the names and roles we apply to others and ourselves free or constrain us, where their power begins and ends. His book is also a loving portrait of the Mexican-American community of his youth. One of my favorite poems, Stop Looking at My Last Name Like That, dismantles stereotypes about that community in beautiful rhythms, quote, nothing in my life was crooked or broken or potholed, not haggard or tired. By the end of the poem, we have arrived at a purer vision, quote, we opened our small yellow umbrellas, some sudden burst of sunlight to walk right into. I'm so glad Michael will share his searching and tender work with us this evening. Here is Michael Torres. Thanks, thanks, Shailene. Um, thank you also everyone at the Pratt Library for putting this together. Um, Hannah at the bookshop, thank you. Um, and Joseph, um, I'm so uh, glad to be reading with you and like to have heard you read. Uh, there's a lot of moments that like caught that are going to stick with me from your reading. So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I got to hear that. And hopefully soon when it's uh, safer, we can meet in person. That'd be, that'd be really cool. Um, so 
Um, one of the, and thank you all in the audience for, for being here. I know you could be uh, a million other places. I mean, uh, virtually at least uh, Netflix or something. So thank you for being here. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, so one of the lines actually in Joseph's reading that I think it was from the epilogue poem that caught my attention was most days memory is the en enemy. And I, and I thought about that line stuck out to me because most of my collection focuses on adolescence and looking back at um, those, that, those years where I was a graffiti artist. And, you know, I think when I started writing the collection, a lot of the book was, you know, I'm, I, I'm just going to work off of memory. And then because um, I'd moved away from that hometown in California to Minnesota, that that memories those sort of memories also became sort of the the enemy or i could see myself struggling with this fact that i and my speaker and my poems had left and now had to like the memories were complicated by that leaving and so um that's kind of what the book centers on and and what i'll be you know what'll pop up in the reading so i'm actually going to start with um a poem that um as many of the many of the poems do like sort of um focuses on the graffiti just to kind of give you a, a little background of what things were like for me slash my speaker so this first one is called on being remick which remick was my graffiti name and the name that some friends still call me back home on being remick remick is a jansport backpack stocked with krylons remick is memory it means a bedroom window splintered open for fingertips to find the way back in its homies in black hoodies and jeans hopping into someone's mother's astro van new york fat caps and german thin tips like dice in your hand remick of paint fumes it's flat black and polished moonlight stolen from the top shelf of the 99 cent store. The remick of adolescence being 16 and nodding to Tupac buzzing through ripped speakers. It's someone turning it down to whisper shout, stop here, go, go. It means feet finding gravel, feet pressed into fence, fingers surrounding metal. It means leaping six feet in one bound or getting stuck. Adidas in the air, prints pressed into dirt, the infamy of remick and wanting to see your name on every cinder block city wall. It's mapping Pomona, California, the rattle and hiss of Remick, spotting police by their headlights and knowing which direction to run. Every road leads home, morning dew on the front lawn and a bent, and a bent window screen. It's going to bed with a Rorschach test of spray paint on your hands and three hours of sleep. It's looking for cotton balls in your sister's nail polish remover before school. The Remick of carved classroom desks the remick of dust wipes clean, remick of remembrance of the many other Mexicans who became names their fathers did not give them, names created or taken from textbooks, the end of a song, names from the wandering imagination plucked like an orange, something glowing among the branches of the mind, names like Dyer, Mace, and Rage, names like Teal, Kaon, and Cyrus, names that resonate in the callous palms of handshakes. This means the only loyalty you know. Remick of words learned but concealed, tucked into the grooves of your knuckles where all men keep secrets. It means knowing fear and pretending you don't know what that means. Contents under pressure, Remick is memory and how the past will call back. It's not being able to forget conflict inside names like dusk. And when you're told to fight, Remick means staring at him as if you will shout in the swinging speech of young men. Remick is adolescence and adolescence is knuckle-headed dumb. 
A circle forms around the two of you and Remick means trying to find something to hate Dusk for. The streams of dirt on his wrinkled shoes, the tattered cuff of his jeans, but you realize he is more like you than he is not. And years from now, you will, you will recall the dark face of Dusk for this reason, for having to grow up in a town lost to potholes and dropouts where boys take on new names because what their fathers offered, offered did not suffice or could not be pronounced or both. The ruin of Remick. Your friends will say, you gonna fuck that fool up, Remick? In a way that was never meant to heed afterthought, but you won't fuck him up. They will turn their heads at you like dogs being whistled for, and you will lie and say, why? I don't even know him. So, um, I'm always like, when I, when I do, a reading I'm always cautious to like read back-to-back -back graffiti poems but I'm going to do that right now because I think it, it just shows what I don't think I realized when I like I had mentioned earlier what I when I first started writing this collection that I was going to go into these memories it, I didn't realize that I would become obsessed with um, graffiti and the idea of how we sort of shaped our identities because of through graffiti graffiti and so this this poem um, you know, when I was 16, all I really wanted at that point, because I was not as dedicated to learning in like my high school years, all I really wanted was to like be a graffiti artist and like learn and be able to do what the, the best graffiti artist could do in, you know, my community. So um, this poem comes from like remembering those, those times and those people. This is called Elegy with Puppet Strings. In high school, there was a boy who went by Dyer. Out of respect and because he was the best graffiti artist I knew, I never called him by any other name. This memory comes with the end of an afternoon and an 87 Corolla idling by the curb waiting for us to go. There's no other way you can have it. I learned long ago that a name can be written on anything and stay. Dyer, for example, holding an empty spray can traces his name on the sky. I still see it. And when it stays with me long enough, there I am again at my desk in 10th grade geometry hunched over ripped graph paper. The voice of Mrs. Graham rises behind me. She yells about the circles I can't draw with the compass. Watch mine curl out in spirals. Every small loss blossoms and there's no way to contain any of them. Not the Corolla I had until the axle snapped. Not Dyer's wrist as he practiced his name, even in class Dyer, whose indifference for police sirens bouncing around those nights we spent painting somehow calmed me too. That was the year I was no one and realized it. So I followed him into train yards rattling. I used to believe what we left came back like a circle in memory. It returns altered. Dyer and the silvers we stole from the 99 cent store, how we coughed over the clack of marbles in cans fit against our belts and bellies all the way out to the parking lot where our homies waited in the Corolla in case we had to run. A person can't stop themselves from thinking about who they were or where an abandoned building with its boarded up windows that mattered to no one except us stood. And Dyer there silvering the unfinished name with the focus I likened to genius the spiraling of his E, a small open window into another dimension where I could see even then his name at the front of an art gallery. And what did we know of the years to come of what we had to do with them? That year, I pretended not to care about school until I didn't, swapping textbooks for paint in a Jansport. A whole year can go like this. 
Then a bell rings. You get up and are gone. It happened this way and I couldn't contain it. When I left, I forgot to leave. What I mean is one of me stayed there with Dyer, who would continue looking as young as he could no longer possibly be, those baggy khakis, that oversized black hoodie, as if asking what really happened to me. There are no small losses. Dyer, I can see your wrist moving in slow circles across the air, just as someone honks the horn. Dyer, I say again, the homies are waiting. You look down to where the birds have left the branches nodding, and you say to me, why not let them? Um, so I, I normally, well, if, this weren't a, if there weren't a pandemic, I would normally be teaching for the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. Um, and what we would do is, uh, what I do is go in about once a week for two hours and teach poetry to the students inside. And I, I've, I've had a great time doing that for the last few years, um, with the exception of this last year. But um, most often, you know, after some discussion, there's a, a, a lot of time for free writing. And, and so I just happened to free write while my students were free writing and, and came up with this poem, um, teaching, teaching one session there. From my classroom window at the prison before students arrive. Because the blinds stay open, I see birds. I watch how men watch those birds. They monitor flight paths and a soaring appetite for the crumbs they shouldn't have pocketed from chow. The indifferent birds ask for nothing, yearn for nothing except perhaps the sky, which is nothing to them but magnetic blue wind, their one great war of journey. I've been thinking about mine lately, my own great war. Once I met a man who'd been waiting hours for a storm to hit. At the park, he told me how difficult flight is for birds. He stared at the humming sky and disappeared. Later that night, I could not fall asleep, not with a fact like that. Instead, I sat at my coffee table and fed a dying rubber fig tree, filtered water, and the eggshells I broke apart, calling them my little countries. I thought of being president. Then I asked myself, why can't I be king? When I arrived at the idea of God, I began to float. When I woke, I understood my only burden is that of a simple life of a man who can go home and think and care for plants that do not know he is their father. If I am no one to these leaves, to whom do I belong? Thus, my great war is with myself, a wingspan of stirring thoughts that ask what's next, that wait for my response, like the man beyond this window, breadcrumbs, tiny questions for birds. Each man tossing a piece at the air anticipates a swooping answer, tries not to think of what goes uneaten, of what falls toward death, wet and certain. That patch of grass they walk, its cold blades, its late October, every step stiff and speechless. Um, let's see. I'll read, I'll read one more poem. Um, the funny thing is like, I feel like when I, when I finished the manuscript and was about to send it to my publisher, um, I was like, there's not a lot of like, for some reason I was surprised that there wasn't a lot of like love poems or poems like considering romantic relationships. And I think what happened was that so much of the friendships 
and like this idea of masculinity sort of like sort of pushed those out of the way but also like shaped the way my speaker um handled those romantic relationships and so this is one of like the few poems that I, I feel like are in there um that sort of like considers that considers like a, a romantic relationship um it's called the Pachuco's grandson smokes his first cigarette after contemplating masculinity. Just because I don't say love doesn't mean it doesn't stir inside me. I'm too young to think it brings anything besides problems, but it's 2 a.m. in the donut shop parking lot and Diana's smoking. I don't care for any. I sip hot cocoa. I devour a bear claw. A night this quiet means my homies are elsewhere leaving me unfolded. Diana and me, we have this game. If you could be anything else, what would it be? I've been waiting for her. Her kissing lips blow smoke. I've been the moon. I've been a coyote on a hillside howling at myself. Finally, she says cactus and turns to exhale away from us. I know why I start, but stop. She socks me anyway, because it's true. I imagine needles on a plant that also blooms flowers what men teach boys to be girls witness as well. We want no one to know us, but here we are. Diana reaches for her pack, passes me one. I decide to take lighter in her hand, cigarette like a flag planted between my lips. Tonight, what country does my body belong to? I hear the horn blare of a distant train. Neither of us can see, and I want to be it too. I want to be here with her and far away alone and unquestioned with my homies and if there is a word for what it is i am it stirs in my gut i assure you diana spins the wheel into fire wraps a hand around the flame holds it there what did i know how to build except something between myself and the world i'll get close i'll stay there longer than i should long enough for her to see me in this light um thank you Oh, um, thank you so much, Michael. That was really lovely. Um, and just, it was just wonderful to hear those poems out loud. Thank you. Um, so now is, we have a little time for Q&A. And I did bring a few questions. Um, but I, I, we would love to hear from you, our audience. We can't see you, but we know you're there. So please um, put your questions and thoughts in the chat. And while other people are thinking of questions, I wanna start us off. Um, something I was thinking about was that I think you could both answer. Um, Joseph, in, in your book, I really enjoyed the relationship between Dr. King's, um, the his, texts that you quoted from at the beginning of most of the poems, the epigraphs. I really enjoyed the way that um, that piece of writing worked with your poem and the way they kind of talked back and forth. Um, so I thought maybe you could talk a little about that. And then, um, Michael, this is a somewhat different sort of question, but the, um, the notes at the end of your book are so fun to read because so many of the poems in your book have a debt to another great piece of writing. I mean, you. I was kind of making a reading list while I was reading your notes. So I thought maybe you could also talk about how other people's writing fuels your writing. So um, see what, <laughs> I don't know if Joe, do you want to take that part? Sure. Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, in some ways, the 
um, I hadn't thought about this really until somebody else said this to me not long after the book came out, but in some ways, Raising King is, is kind of an ekphrastic book. It's writing about another work of art. The book's Raising King is divided up into three sections. Stride Toward Freedom, which is Dr. King's first book, what he writes when he's like 26 years old. It's all about Montgomery. Why We Can't Wait, as I said before, all about 1963. He's just a few years older, but this year was amazingly violent. And then the year the, he writes in the last year of his life, uh, where do we go from here, chaos or community? And I didn't read so many from that section, but um, right. So every poem has a, its own title and then an epigraph from Dr. King. And then the poem that that in some way re responds to, to his words. So in some ways you, you said maybe Michael's, the question to Michael wasn't similar to the question to me, but it sort of is because we're both relying, I think, on the words of another in some ways. Um, maybe me a little bit more explicitly uh, because I'm really responding to Dr. King or even taking up his voice and amplifying it uh, or, or extending it or, or something. Um, but I think it's, uh, it was, I don't think you can write it. Well, I, you got to be careful writing a book about Dr. King, um, especially if you look like me. And, um, and even still, there are people who say I shouldn't have written these poems. Um, that's enough. That's a bigger conversation, I suppose. But, but I think that there's something of th those making sure that my po that the poems responded to specific words of his was part of what kept me in the lane. Um, you know, so I didn't sort of go off the road or tried not to go off the road. His words kept me there um, because the I, I want the book to be true to him. That's the and that's a very different kind of book. I've never written anything like this before. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope focusing on his words helps the poems to be true to him and to his life and to what he what 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 he was trying to do, his life and work. Yeah, um, something and you didn't use this word, but it made me think of you, you said you were like relied on his words. And when I think of like all the the notes from the back of my book and maybe even stuff that I didn't mention in the notes, I think of like I think it's in one part. Um, conversation like I'm having a conversation with something or like I, I'm reacting to to something that that like I read or listened to that that is sort of that sort of helped the poem come into being and I guess I, I like tracking those things anyway like I have like even <clears throat> drafts of poems that I'm working on now like I have a, 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 a separate document where I write down like where that thing came from um I, I think I think because I like to go back and and, and you know, kind of like um, remind myself that that like there's these many different places where where a poem can come from or where the work can come from, and and that I don't just have to. I think I think I think because at first I was so um, trying to depend so much on memory, and that's not always that. It, it could be you know you can hit a dead end right there. So um, for me, the the notes was like a way of tracking that, and also. Um, continuing like like sort of like a note to, to self to continue to be inspired by you know totally different sort of um did, did different sort of research topics I guess for different like I, I do that all the time when I can't write is I go listen to like an interview of an artist too is not even like not like a, a writer but like a visual artist or something like that and I might get influenced and I'll like make a note of that and I, th I think that's it's just really important for my process and I also like to document it so that people know, so the other, the reader might know too. 
I think those are interesting sections in books when I read them. So yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, maybe it's because I'm a librarian, but I just love I love when the notes give you a lot of other reading um, ideas. Um, so I don't see an audience question, so I'm going to give you one more for me. Um, this is a question about audience, um, the audience you imagine. And this this I was thinking of more when I read your poems, Michael, but I think, again, that Joseph, um, you may have thoughts about it, too. But um, Michael, your poems um, speak to differences between worlds so much that I wondered if when you were writing, you imagined someone, say, from your hometown reading a poem more, would you be quicker to think of, of that audience as opposed to, say, someone in a more academic milieu? Or does it not, does the question of audience kind of not enter your mind when you are in the composition process? Because I know some poets say they're writing for the dead or, you know, some, or for themselves. So that's, maybe it's not even an issue, but it just struck me that there's this divide that you're bridging with your work. Yeah. Um, so I would, I will say that for sure when I think of, and I do think of audience and I think of um, like my, my homie Danny from back home. And he's also like a stand in for everybody from home, but it's always like Danny who, who like when I'm, or this, this sort of like imagined Danny when I'm writing the poem and I imagine like, if he saw this, if I read it to him, would he, would he, would he like nod to 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 the truth of the poem or would he shake his head to it and that's sort of like my barometer what 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 my imagined danny would like say um and 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 even you know um even the poems that are like traversing you know an academic world i think i i want those poems to be um accessible and i mean i think i'm actively sort of resisting the ideas of academia and like the exclusivity of academia in the book. And I, and I think, I think that that should ring true and should be an accessible idea to the, like the Danny in my mind. And like, I don't know, I, I think I get the greatest, um, I'm like the greatest honor, I, the grace of honors when, when someone who is not really a poetry reader, but is like from my hometown or, or, or things like that, like that, when they read the poems and they feel that there's truth in there, that's to me like the greatest sort of compliment I can never receive. Yeah, that's, that's, there's some interesting things there. And I feel like it, it gives me a question. Maybe I want to, I'd like to ask you after Michael or after this. Um, I mean, I'm clearly thinking of an audience, you know, with Raising King. Um, I'm one of those people who deeply believes that if more people knew Dr. King's life and work, the world would be more just. Um, and I also think, you know, and many people have pointed this out, that he's been pretty profoundly whitewashed uh, in the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, maybe, um, as if the only thing he ever said was, I have a dream or something, and it was all just about walking side by side. When he had this really very sharp, thoughtful critique of militarism and materialism and racism, uh, which are, you know, obviously massive problems and wounds in America today. Um, we're just getting ready to begin the, the George Floyd trial in Michael in, in the state where you are now. Um, you know, I remember saying to somebody yesterday, God help us if they, you know, if there isn't a sense of justice out of this. So, I mean, I was, I was thinking of, 
kind of every adult I knew. Uh, and in some ways thinking of my students too, though they're high school students, the older high school student kids, but thinking how are ways that, or how can I write these poems in such a way that will make someone want to learn more about Dr. King or will make his work and his life more clear, come out more, tr more truly to them. Um, I think I was thinking that all, all the way through from the first, from composition to the last revisions. Yeah. Um, that's great. Um, we, ha we do have an audience question. Thank you, Julie. Um, um, we'll have to, we do have to wrap soon, but um, Joseph, can you um, say something about what prompted you to start writing about King? Um, what was the impetus? Hmm. Well, um, I began teaching Dr. King's life uh, in, a, in, a, in a freshman seminar class back at Notre Dame in uh, like the, the late 90s and uh, taught his work there for about 10 years. And then at American University more recently here in DC, um, built a, a composition class around the three books that is Raising King. And I just sort of thought the whole time I was teaching the class, um, you know, we're learning about King and looking at his writing in these three different books, three different times of his life. But the whole time I'm thinking, this is a book of poems. <laughs> That's what I have to do. Um, and, and, and so, you know, in some ways I feel like in my head, and to, this is to Julie, who's a, who's a born and raised in Pomona too, Michael. Um, uh, I've been writing these poems in my head for 25 years. I mean, for a really long time. And that's, you know, that's not like most books of poems. I don't, I don't think, uh, I mean, maybe Michael, maybe your book has been, it's been these ideas and experiences have been in, in your head and heart for a long time. Um, but so, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it began was, was teaching his life and, and watching young people say, oh my goodness, like, I just didn't know any of this and, and seeing his view of the world, views of the world as really important and useful and potentially uh, transformative. Yeah, well, amen to that. Um, so I would actually love to have a longer conversation, but um I think we should move to closing poems. And if people have more questions for Joseph and Michael, they're, they're um, both have websites that are very easily accessible and you can reach out to them um, later, but um, I'm gonna let you to read your last poems. Um, thank you. Uh, I'll go first, Michael, and give you the last word. Is that okay? Uh, cool. Then I'm just going to choose uh, kind of the last poem in the book before the epilogue, which again is um, in the voice of Coretta Scott King, uh, and it's titled Funeral. What do you tell your children about their father, stone still in a casket before them? That a bad man in Memphis did this and so, that our country did this and so, these little children need to live with the man who did this. These little children need to live with the country that did this. What do you tell your children? Um, I'll read the first poem in the book. <laughs> Doing donuts in an 87 Mustang 5.0 after my homie Chris gets broken up with. I want to argue for the stars, but I find them missing through this window splattered with mud. Tonight, I sit shoddy and do not ask Chris if he's okay. 
This is the kind of loyalty I know, how the Mustang makes eights across a soccer field. I run my hand over Penny's Pepsi to the center console. That photo of his ex still blocks the speedometer and the next few years of his life have already begun to carve a cave. I pluck Penny's into my palm. It doesn't take long for this story to burn through the field. The safety belt shocks my collar. Chris turns and aims for a gate without easing off the gas. I yell, fuck it, to whatever I can't hear him say. And isn't that why I'm here? To watch chain links swell in his headlights, to disappear the pennies with my fist. Thank you. Oh, thank you both so much. Um, again, we're all applauding for you in our spaces. Um, and this has been a great evening. I wanna thank um, Joseph Ross, Michael Torres, Hannah and the Ivy Bookshop. I want to thank our ASL interpreter, Timothy, and all of you, especially for being with us tonight. Um, there is a program survey that I posted in the chat. And if you haven't filled that out yet, if you could take a minute and do that, that would be really helpful. Have a wonderful rest of your evening. Take care all and stay safe. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.